0: Soul. Talk radio edits. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. So tonight's topic is uh, vaccines, specifically. Well, let's just take at measles, mumps, and rubella. So, as you know, a lot of times I sit around and just to uh, you know, think about things. So here's the deal: you got measles, mumps, and rubella, and you got people who are uh, getting vaccinated against this. And the question is, what's really going on here? Are the vaccines effective? Uh, are they preventing something? Um, should we doing more vaccines, less vaccines? How do we sort this out? So what really got me thinking was this Medscape family medicine thing. Many of you know that I subscribe to the newsfeed that they send to doctors. Explain to your doctors why uh, they should do things and what they should do. And so mumps case, cases spike. 2016 total is the highest in 10 years. But wait, more people are vaccinated now than they have been in the last 10 years. And so this is a, this is a, this is a shock. So we vaccinate, and the more we vaccinate, the more disease we get. You would think that a person would conclude basically that, well, maybe vaccines are not effective. Maybe we we shouldn't be vaccinating as a method of preventing the um, infection here. So let's take a look. Let's see what they're saying about the mumps vaccines and uh, what this might mean. What's what, what's going on? So mumps cases nationally have hit 249 in the past four weeks. Hallelujah! Nearly four times normal levels, according to data published in the December second issue of the Mortality Morbidity Weekly Report. And morbidity is harm, and mortality is death. Just so we know what, got, know what we're talking about. This is December fifteenth. So the recent outbreaks have pushed. The nation's 216 total to 3,832 primary, preliminary cases, largest number of cases in 10 years, and three times last year's total of 1,088. Yes. Now, Manisha Patil, a doctor from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Division of Viral Diseases, told Medscape Medical News that the high Monthly numbers follow the pattern in a high incidence year, but they may also reflect the states that are trying to get their year end numbers in. Well, I mean, either, either the, number, the people were infected or they're not. So let's just say, say numbers are different, people are really infected. As of November 5th, 45 states and the District of Columbia had reported Mumps cases this year. Wow, 45 out of, out of 50 states. So that's what? Six states have reported more than 100 cases, according to the CDC. cases, states, in case you want to know, are Arkansas, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, Massachusetts, and Oklahoma. So Arkansas has the highest total by far at 1,305 cases this year, which is twice Iowa's. Three states are responsible for, for most of the total of 48 cases reported in the latest week, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and New York. According to the Arkansas Department of Health website, the department is currently responding to an active outbreak of mumps in the northwest part of the state. Kids with vaccine exemption in Arkansas schools where where there have been infections are required to stay home from school for 26 days unless they get the vaccines. Whoa. So the kids who are not vaccinated are staying home. So that means the outbreak must be caused by the ones who are vaccinated? Hmm. Arkansas cases are mostly centered in grade schools and high schools, but nationally the cases primarily have been spread among the clusters of students at universities. The mumps virus is spread through saliva and mucus by coughing, sneezing, kissing, or other direct contact. New York is experiencing an outbreak at the state university of New York, New Paltz campus on December 9th the New York State Department of Health reported 63 confirmed or probable cases. Now, I don't know what a confirmed or probable is, but in my book, probable means not a case. Confirmed means it's a case. So to lump the two together seems to me at least imprecise. At any rate, with the SUNY New Paltz location since October and more are being investigated, the New York State Department of Health, together with the Ulster County Department and SUNY New Paltz, held a vaccination clinic on December 13th and 14th at the university. One dose of the MMR vaccine is considered 78% effective in preventing mumps, and two doses are 88% effective, according to the CDC. The New York State Department of Health recommends that students get a third dose of the MMR vaccine. Just for your information, in order to get into a college in New York, you must have two doses of MMR vaccine, just by the way. So now, New York State is recommending a third dose of MMR vaccine and is providing it for free. MedState News previously reported that the third dose may be beneficial in outbreaks. May be beneficial. So, in other words, just to give you some background on this, people got one dose of MMR vaccine. It didn't seem to be protective, so they got a second dose, which apparently does not seem to be protective. And so now the recommendation is a third dose. Okay. There's increasing evidence that a third dose of the MMR vaccine will help raise immunity among the students who have not yet been exposed and help prevent the further spread of mumps on the campus. New York State Health Commissioner Howard Zucker, MD, said in the university news release. So the health commissioner said this. We're also urging students to wash their hands regularly and avoid contact with people who may be sick and immediately notify their health care provider if they suspect they are sick. Students who are ill should stay home from classes and social events. Pause. Let's hit the pause button right now, okay? Just hit the big pause button. So if hand washing can prevent the contraction of this disease, that means this disease must be spread by touching Unclean surfaces. Otherwise, there would new, be no benefit to increasing the frequency of hand washing. So, if you're already washing your hands, let's just for the sake of discussion, say after you use a toilet and before you um, eat, then you're not going to contract the disease from. You know, increasing your hand washing would be difficult to say it was going to help you unless the disease is transmitted by touching other surfaces. Okay, well, let's see what we got here. CDC says adults born before 1957 are considered immune to mumps after one vaccination. That means people are 60 or more, over 60. But children should get two doses, and adults born in 57 or later should have a second dose if they are in a college or university, work in a healthcare facility, or plan to travel internationally. Dr. Patel said the CDC is working with the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, a panel of U.S. health experts who meet three times a year to establish vaccination guide, guidance to gather and analyze data on whether a third MMR dose should be recommended and for whom. The CDC is also working with public health experts on the epidemiology of mumps, and how waning, that means lessening, immunity contributes to these outbreaks. It is important to remember that two doses of MMR can reduce your risk of getting mumps. You mean it can, it doesn't, actually, but it can? They're not sure? And reduce the risk of severe mumps, and also reduce the risk of transmitting to others, Dr. Petil said. Before the u s. Mumps vaccination program started in sixty seven the CDC received reports of one hundred and eighty six thousand cases each year. okay, so let's let's just uh, back up here and take a look at a little bit a little bit of um, logic. So if we take a look at how these cases, ostensibly, are being transmitted. So if mumps is transmitted through saliva by coughing, sneezing, and kissing or direct contact, then how would hand washing be of any help? If someone coughs on you and they spray all these this saliva and you inhale the saliva, how's washing your hands possibly going to help that? If sneezing, you know, putting out all these projectiles is... Uh, Water in your sneeze, if that is spreading the disease, again, how can washing your hands help? Kissing. If kissing spreads the disease, again, the spread is not going to be in any way diminished by washing hands or other direct contact. So we don't know what the other direct contact is, so we're we're not going to imagine anything. So all of these spreads, saliva, mucus, coughing, sneezing, kissing, if that's the only way it spread, then hand washing would not be of any help. So why would they recommend hand washing? So this is not this is not hanging together. And this shot, it seems like you need you do one, then you need another, then you need another. So I said to myself, I said, you know, there is some missing information here. For example, what is the vaccination rate for mumps? How many people are actually being vaccinated against the mumps? So let's take a look and see. How many kids are vaccinated against the mumps? So what they're saying then is they don't really know how many people are vaccinated against the mumps. But I'll bet you, I'll bet you there's a way to find out. Or even better yet, why not take a look at mumps outbreaks? We do have information on that. Uh, So this is the um, National Institutes of Health website, Human Vaccines and Immunotherapeutics. Environmental factors potentially associated with mumps transmission in yeshivas during a mumps outbreak among highly vaccinated students. So yeshivas is the name of a uh, university uh, or school actually where, where Jewish people attend. So during t- 2009 to 2010, the large U.S. mumps outbreak occurred affecting two two-dose vaccinated ninth to 12th graders. In other words, these kids had two doses of vaccine before the age of 18. And they are Orthodox Jewish boys attending all-male yeshivas. That's a private traditional Jewish school. So the fact that they're Jewish here is, is not particularly relevant, but the relevant fact is, that they've had two doses a month of vaccine. Our objective was to understand month transmission dynamics in this well-vaccinated population. And so what they had here is the ninth and 12th grade students, and the uh, vaccination rate here was pretty darn um, impressive. So, 97% of the cases. So, our objective was to understand mumps' transmission dynamics in this well vaccinated population. Although inclusion of lightly affected schools would have allowed us to clarify differences explaining transmission, 97% of cases were in the Orthodox Jewish population. And so, the question is how did this? highly vaccinated population sustained ninety seven percent of the uh, infection. So the vaccination coverage was ninety seven to one hundred percent. And they had two dose coverage. And so they they said, Well, the person to person spread, could it be the density? So I says, Well, these classes had an average of 26.5 students per classroom, which for New York State is not an especially large classroom. I know, I went to school in New York State. When all students gathered in the um, base midrash for study hall and prayers, an average of 195 students were in the same room. I'm sure it was a pretty big room. Average room densities for the classroom, study hall, prayer time, and cafeteria were 5.8, 6.2, 7.1, and 8.4 students per 100 square feet. Average daily mean density was 6.6 students per 100 square feet. Ventilation. They use central heating. Uh, half use central heating. 100% have windows that could open. And 89% is air conditioning, of which three also use fans. So we have a lot of air moving here. We've okay, got central heating with open windows and fans and air conditioning. Prevention measures. Seven yeshivas increased sanitization, sanitary practices during the outbreak. Ninety percent communicated with parents or students about mumps. And all yeshivas sent symptomatic students home. None of the yeshivas, which are schools, canceled or postponed classes. This is important. So they increased sanitary practices during the outbreak, communicated with parents, and sent anyone home who was sick. The average month's attack rate in the yeshivas was 14.5%. That's huge. So 14.5% of the kids got sick in this population, where 97% were vaccinated. And 80% of the of the schools had attack rates more than 10%. 10th and 12th grade had the highest average attack rates, at 18%. 9th and 11th grade, 11%. These are high attack rates. So the class with the highest attack rate, 42%, so 42% of the kids got sick, had a 95% two-dose vaccination coverage. Clearly, these vaccines were were not effective. So 11 classes had zero-case students All in all, two dose MMR coverage in these classes was 96 to 100%. So, how do you get a 42% outbreak with 96% coverage of vaccination? What does that tell you about the vaccines? So, we included data. They included data from the nine issues we had scheduling information. When accounting for clustering, a number of hours spent face to face with a teacher or fellow student showed significant positive association with classroom mumps attack rates in a univariate analysis. But these associations did not persist in multivariate analysis. So in other words, when we looked at one variation, okay, it looked like an association, but when you took in other factors, there was no association between hours of contact and whether there was an infection. What does this mean? If the hours of contact close contact with a, with fellow classmates has nothing no association with your chances of being infected that means that it is unlikely that it's person to person spread so if the source of the out, if you increase your con, your contact with the source of the outbreak then you should increase your chances of getting infected or affected so no association with person to person contact therefore we can conclude that person-to-person contact was not a factor in the spread of the disease. This is shocking. So 42% of students had an outbreak of a disease that has not got a person-to-person spread. Okay. To become infected, a person must be within three feet of an infected person or have direct contact with his secretions. Uh, that's the belief about uh, this is what they're saying. Although, in multivariate analysis, we did not find an association between classroom mumps attack rates and face-to-face time or number of classes per day. So we postulate, that means we guess, that these factors did not vary across the included yeshivas to allow differences to be discriminated. Okay. That's not true. If the factors didn't vary but the infection rate did, which it did vary. Some had zero attack rate, some had a 42% attack rate. So if the attack rate varied, but the frequency of contact did not vary, then you know that frequency of contact with other students had nothing to do with spreading the disease. So these students attended school 12.7 hours per day with 26.5 students per classroom. Compared with six hours a day, and 18 students per classroom for other private U.S. secondary schools, although neither school day duration nor density was significant risk factors in univariate analysis. Again, frequency and length of exposure to other potentially infected people did not increase the infection rate. So this is compelling, getting close to overwhelming evidence that the... um, person-to-person contact is not the way this disease is being spread. This is uh, <laughs> shocking. And since it's not person-to-person spread, that would explain why vaccines might not work, because vaccines are predicated upon the presumption of person-to-person spread. So, um, in other words, contagious, that these are contagious. Okay. These findings are consistent with a large month outbreak in Israel in 2009, where most cases also occurred among well-vaccinated Orthodox Jewish adolescent males, with minimal spread to the broader community, despite regular mixing with non-Orthodox Jews. Mumps outbreaks have also occurred in other international settings among highly vaccinated populations. Now, let's understand this. So we have this group of people. um, They happen to be Jewish, but the the religion is, I don't think, a factor here. These people who congregate in a particular location have a high outbreak. They, however, failed to transmit this infection, call it mumps, to any other people, even though outside of school they had several contacts. And so if the outbreak is associated with a particular location, then you have to figure. There's something in that location that is a reservoir for this disease where the disease is located. So two MMR vaccine doses provide 66 to 95% vaccine effectiveness against mumps. That's a darn broad range. But if we look at the outbreak, this is not true because we have a 42% outbreak and a 95% or 96% vaccinated population. So we know that two doses does not provide this effectiveness. Now, there may be a research article that says this effectiveness is provided, but we know just from observation from this particular outbreak that is not true. Okay, the two-dose policy has reduced mumps incidence by more than 99% compared with the pre-vaccine era. Now, the problem with this is if you take a look at the... Uh, vaccination rates and you look at the uh, mumps cases. You can see that MMR combination vaccine was introduced in 1971. There were lots of mumps that year. Okay. So it's reduced, it was introduced in 1971. But wait, what was the vaccination rate? Just because the vaccine was reduced, was introduced, let's see, well, you know, who got the vaccine? And the other question to look at is, well, let's take a look at the uh, vaccine uptake rates. That means how many people got the vaccine and how many people got um, the disease, If we look at 1999, then what we see is the vaccine uptick rate, or uptake rate, people who are vaccinated, kind of hovered around 94 94 to 92%. And it would fluctuate kind of like a wave up and down. But it has no correlation with getting a second dose or with outbreaks at all. So if you look at the number of uh, outbreaks, there's a peak in 1993 in MMR outbreaks or measles outbreaks. But there's not a decline Corresponding decline in the number of vaccines. Then we notice that the vaccine, the number of rates of measles infections drops to a low in 1995, and then it spikes again in 1996. There's a big spike in 1996, even though vaccination rates from 1994 to 1996 increased steadily from 92% to 94%. So despite the steady increase in vaccination rate, there was a spike in the number of cases. Then it was decided to give a second dose of MMR. And the second dose of MMR was given, and then the cases reported declined in 97 and continued to decline through 2000. I happen to have more information that there were, uh, of course, other spikes and this is only 2000, but if you go to 2015 there are more spikes even though the vaccination rate increased from 92% to 94 to 96%. So there's absolutely no association between the vaccine rate and the infection rate. This suggests that there may not be any um, association between vaccines and uh, susceptibility to the disease. So in other words, the vaccines don't protect you from the disease and the um, disease does not um, respond to vaccines. So why could that be? Let's just take a look at the first premise. The first premise is that vaccines are, I'm sorry, that these diseases are spread by person-to-person contact. So we know from these yeshiva outbreaks that that is absolutely not the case. We can see that duration of exposure to other people who are infected, um, being physically close to people infected, none of that affects the infection rate. And these students... In this outbreak, they have been totally unable to spread it to anyone else. So mumps is not a person-to-person spread uh, thing. Now, what did these places do to stop the outbreak? Answer, they increased hygiene. They increased sanitation. They started cleaning surfaces. So then you have to say... Where does this, where does this uh, happen? So to answer this, we take a look at the uh, principles of epidemiology. And we go to CDC.gov, of course, and they say the chain of infection. Hmm. It says here's the here's the, uh, the deal. Modes of transmission. This is for an infectious agent can be transmitted from its natural reservoir to a susceptible host in different ways: one direct, that means direct contact with another infected person, or droplet spread, that would be the cough and sneeze, or indirect, Uh-huh. that means an infected person, uh, or it, it, this organism gets in the air and circulates around, so when it inhales it, boom. Vehicle-borne, that means it can be conveyed maybe through the water or the food. Uh, vector-borne, mechanical, or biological. Now, vector uh, subsumes another category, which is fomites, F-O-M-I-T-E-S, fomites. And that means that a person who's infected can touch an inanimate object. That means a table, a telephone, a doorknob, and deposit this infectious agent, another person can come along, handle the same infectious agent, and boom, that person becomes infected or picks up the infectious agent, then maybe they touch their face, pick their nose, and they then become infected. So the CDC uh, explains this uh, to us very well. If you look up fomites, and measles. Uh, And amazing things uh, happen. And what they do is they um, talk about this. Now, Oregon says that this is the case. So it says there's reporting, there's physician requirement, health department reporting, follow-up responsibilities, epidemiology. Um, So epidemiology is measles. It has a distinct stage that begins mild to moderate malaise, usually within 24 hours. There's an onset onset of conjunctivitis, photophobia, sneezing, nasal congestion, and then um, you get a rash. So if there's person-to-person spread, it's talking measles, mumps, and rubella here, modes of transmission, uh, if the incubation period ranging from 7 to 14 days, how can 42% of the class get infected by person-to-person spread? They can't. One person gets it, takes 7 to 18 days before he becomes contagious, he spreads it to another kid, 7 to 14 days, another kid, and so on. It literally takes uh, you know, three months for this spread to take place. And so you can't have um, a sudden outbreak affecting half of a population just because the incubation period is so long. So the interval from exposure to rash onset can be longer, 14 days, 18 days, 21 days. And a person is, is contagious four days before the rash, up to four days after the rash shows up. So basically the person is contagious from day seven to somewhere from day 7 to 18. And so this is this is a, a bit of a delay and with this delay it cannot be explained by person-to-person contact and uh, this is, Measles. Now, what about uh, mumps? So we take a look at mumps, and the thing would be mumps and fomites. So <laughs> If you're a traveler, you look at chapter three of the Yellow Book of 2016. What does it say? It says mumps is transmitted by respiratory droplets. That means cough, 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 cough saliva, kiss, kiss, or a contact with contaminated fomites. And what's a contaminated fomite? Contaminated fomite is an object like furniture, for example, that where the um, organism can live for a limited period of time and a person can catch it. So you can imagine uh, 26.6 kids walking into a classroom, each one turning the doorknob. Uh-huh. One of those kids might deposit mumps on those doorknobs, And boom, the other six kids that come behind him pick up mumps. This is a much more plausible explanation and also explain why the outbreak confined to a limited time and space. So many had an outbreak so quickly. So if you're a traveler and the CDC is talking about traveler's health, all of a sudden mumps is spread by fomites. But if you're a hapless, that means uh, unaware, victim, child or parent in the United States, then for you, eh, personal person spread. That's the only way. Get your vaccines. But the really telling thing was that this Jewish school stopped its epidemic by cleaning up the fomites. Increased sanitation. Got out the um, cloth with the cleaning material and, and just wiped off all the countertops, all the doorknobs, all the toilet seats. Wiped them all up. And boom. outbreak break over. So If you're a traveler, then it's fomites you need to worry about. But somehow, if you're a kid, you need a third MMR shot. Or worse, if you're a young adult uh, at college. So, this is a real real problem. So we've got a disease we've now determined, measles, mumps, and rubella, spread by something called fomites. And those of you who are old enough, over 60, you remember, they said, no, diseases cannot be spread by doorknobs and toilet seats. Absolutely cannot be spread by doorknobs and toilet seats. But wait, measles is excreted where? In the stool. So if you have measles, it's deposited in your stool. And what do you do when you're in a school? Well, use the toilet, of course. So if one kid is shedding measles, and he just has a little spill in the toilet seat, kind of wipes it up, but there's still some measles there. The next kid that uses the toilet seat, maybe he puts his hand in the toilet seat to push himself off the toilet seat or to push himself on the toilet seat, whatever. So he's just picked it up. And so um, toilet seats and doorknobs, these are fomites, they oh, there, seem to be a problem. And the CDC is willing to tell you about it if, if you look under Travelers. So if you look under Travelers Health, the CDC disease control prevention will tell you that mumps is an infectious agent transmitted by contaminated fomites. Yep. Toilet seats and doorknobs. And that's exactly what we should be doing. We should be vaccinating toilet seats and doorknobs. Yes, absolutely. If vaccines do work, the problem is they're being misapplied, not being they're applying, applied to um, humans when actually the vector is the toilet seat and the doorknobs. And I just can't tell you, when I was a kid, the public relations ridicule in the media, in uh, TV shows, by the government, no, infections cannot be spread by toilet seats or doorknobs. And in medical school, they repeated it again and again and again and again and again. So um, these illnesses, mumps, measles, and rubella, there's absolutely no evidence. There's person-to-person spread. If there was person-to-person spread, then you could examine one person that has the measles. You say, okay, where'd you get it from? You could go find the other person they got it from. Oh, they're positive too, and so on. But uh, that's not the case. Uh, In these so-called epidemics, they've been unable to find not only the the index case, that would be the first case, but to piece together, it was spread from this person to this person to this person to this person. person. So um, let's take a look at another uh, .gov National Institutes of Health study. This is risk factors for transmission of mumps in a highly vaccinated population in Orange County. So highly vaccinated. What's your conclusion? Let's just cut to the chase here. Two doses of mumps containing vaccine may not be effective in outbreak settings with multiple prolonged and intense exposure. Additional studies are required to understand why these mumps outbreaks occur and how they can be prevented in the future. So obviously, if you have a setting with multiple prolonged and intense exposure, the answer is, of course, exposure to what? I say exposure to doorknobs and toilet seats, but let's see what they say. 2009-2010, this is, again, the same yeshiva population in Orange County to identify risk factors associated with mumps transmission among persons with two doses of mumps-containing vaccine. So the question is, these people have two doses of vaccine, how come they're getting the mumps? So demographic epidemiologic characteristics were collected on students in grades 6 through 12 in three schools. The last study I read you was on grades uh, 9 through 12. A mumps case was defined as a student who self-reported parotitis, that means uh, pain in the jaw or the parotid gland. orchitis, that means pain in the testicles, jaw swelling, and or a mumps-related complication, or whose mumps illness was reported to the Orange County Health Department. Now wait, wait. These are symptoms. Who's to say the infecting agent was mumps? So they didn't even uh, go to what was the infectious agent. Did you know, they test these kids? I don't know. Long binomial regression analysis were conducted separately for boys and girls as they attended different schools and had different hours of study. Of the 2,503 students with two documented doses of lumps containing vaccine, 13% developed mumps. Well, that's outrageous. Risk of mumps increased with the increasing number of mumps cases in the class. So if a person was in a particular class, their chances of getting mumps were higher if there were more kids in the class with mumps. Well, that's just a mathematical reality. It doesn't prove anything. Okay. Age at first dose time since last dose, time between first and second dose, school class size, number of hours at school per week, and household size were not associated with having mumps. In other words, it's not contagious. In other words, the timing of the dose of the vaccine has nothing to do with it, so the kid's immune status, again, had nothing to do with it. So if the kid got his shot early, on time, or late, it it did not confer any protection against this outbreak. So we have a second examination of this outbreak, and they say, you know what? These outbreaks have nothing to do with person-to-person transmission, and whether or not a person gets the mumps has nothing to do with whether or not they're vaccinated. It does have to do with whether or not they're in a particular room of the building. And this implicates what? That this infectious agent is present either in the bathroom in that particular classroom, on the doorknobs of that classroom, or is located on a fomite in that classroom. And again, as I said, only if you're traveling. So, spikes in mumps cases despite vaccination increase, you have to ask where the cases are coming from. What's the environmental reservoir? If there's a contagious disease in humans, then there has to be a non human reservoir. It's just a definition. For example, food poisoning, the reservoir is the food. And although it can be spread by food, lack of hand washing can spread it from person to person. So, it's contagious, but the food is the reservoir. So the month, where's the reservoir? How's it getting to adults? And the question from the vaccinated children, where does it come from? But the point is we know it is not a person-to-person spread, and the epidemiology of these Jewish classrooms really narrows this down. It's just in a particular classroom having nothing to do with how long a person uh, – goes to school, their proximity to other people, how big their family is, none of these things in any way affects whether or not a person gets infected. So I say we should start vaccinating fomites. Yes, start vaccinating fomites. Vaccinate those toilet seats, vaccinate those doorknobs, and, well, any other fomites you can think of. And just in case you're not clear about what a fomite is, a fomite is an object or material likely to carry infections such as clothes, utensils, and furniture. Again, doorknobs and toilet seats. Interessante. And so we had a group of these, these students. At the beginning of the semester, nobody had mumps. All of a sudden, there was an outbreak. How can you have an outbreak? Where does the organism come from that infects the first person? Nowhere? Then, what is it? Spontaneous generation? Magic? Organism comes from nowhere? This is superstition. It's proven by the science, by the microscope. There is no spontaneous generation. So, if the first person did not get infected from another person, because there were no infected people in the group to start, he must have gotten the organism from a non-human source, from other than the 29 people in the room. Maybe, you should say a person outside the room, but again, there's no evidence of that because none of these students had contact with anyone outside the class who was also infected, which means not only did they not get it from someone outside the class, but they even failed to transmit it to their family members. So these outbreaks are absolutely not caused by person-to-person spread. They really are caused by fomites. You really do need to wipe those toilet seats or don't even sit on them And wipe the doorknob before you, before you use it or wash your hands after. Because guess what? That's what stopped the, um, stopped the epidemic. Not vaccines. So we're going to go take a look in the chat room see what they got to say. Oh, by the way, you are listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul channel. And let's see if we can find our questions. So click over here. And uh I see over here. I'm just gonna go over here to the chat room. Of course, as many of you know, you can always sign to my chat room. I'm sure there's a lively discussion going on there. It is healing with drdaniel.chatango.com. <laughs> Okay, let's see. A lot of comments. Related to the subject of toilets, is the BPA in toilets as serious as it sounds? Can anyone recommend a brand of BPA-free toilet paper until I can transition away from it altogether? Hmm. I would say that if you're not getting a rash on your skin from your toilet paper, chances are it might not be a problem. When I was uh, into this, first got into this whole organic thing, I um, switched to organic chemical-free toilet paper, but oh, my God. Oh, it was rougher than sandpaper. So um, I stuck with it, though, until I got married, and then my husband insisted on the super soft triple-thick stuff. Okay. So Dr. Dance, if you got botulism, would turpentine or borax kill it or would you need to add activated charcoal instead or as well? Okay, so first of all, what is botulism? Once you understand what botulism is, that helps a lot. So what kills you in botulism is the toxin. So what happens is you have a bottle of food, let's call it honey, and um, the botulina organism makes botulina toxin. And it keeps making more toxin and more toxin and more toxin until a concentration of toxins becomes, well, pretty darn high. And so the only thing that would save you at that point would be activated charcoal at best, because it's the toxins produced over time in that jar of food, let's just call it honey, that's causing the problem. So the actual organism itself doesn't make enough toxin um, to kill you. What uh, gives you the problem is that it's, it's sat there in the jar Building up this concentration of toxins over time. So one organism swallowing it in your mouth isn't going to, you know, cause you a problem. The problem is that by letting the um, by letting the organisms sit there and eat the honey and multiply and make more toxin, you get an abnormally high concentration of the toxins. Okay. Okay. Um, (laughs) Dr. Daniels, what would cause a skinny teenager to have stress incontinence and burning in the bladder occasionally for months? So, if the skinny teen didn't eat much meat, that causes the stress incontinence right there. The burning in the bladder um, is caused by ingestion of some chemical that has an affinity for the bladder. Often it's antibiotics, but it can be anything just depending on what the situation is. Okay. Okay. All right. So long questions don't work. (laughs) Loses my train of thought. All right. What else we got here? Dr. Daniels, (laughs) what should one use to clean these toilet seats and doorknobs from these illnesses? Uh, Really, soap and water, probably vinegar and water would be just fine. Um, The biggest thing is the water component. So you've just got to clean up the area. You can use vinegar and water, which is a slightly acidic solution, or you can use um, baking soda and water, which is a slightly alkaline solution. But the point is, you've got to clean the Toilet seats and doorknobs between use, and that appears to be what what prevents and stops the um, the transmission. Okay <laughs> So Dr. Janet, is it true? Not only can you not sue vaccine companies for damages, you can't even sue them for faulty design. That's true. Uh, And so I told the medical school that vaccines do damage people, they do kill people, but that's okay because they save more people than they kill. Okay. Is there a King Bio homeopathic remedy to negate the ill effects of vaccines? No, there is not. <laughs> uh, no, the the damage of vaccines is way beyond that. There are live organisms in the vaccine. There are um, chemicals in the vaccine. The vaccines are absolutely a, a toxic soup designed to harm. I mean, that would be like taking a knife and slicing your skin and asking, uh, you know, is there some kind of homeopathic remedy you could sprinkle on the cut so that it would be like it never happened. No, the only protection, the only surefire protection against vaccines is not to get them. That is it. Is it possible to clean vaccines for your system? If so, how? In my experience, Vitality Capsules and Turpentine. That does it. Okay. Can and does turpentine have an effect on the vaccines we've been given? Yes, it does. However, again, the best thing is just not to get the vaccines. Back Dan, Is there any reaction... If there's a reaction, is there any recourse for remedies since vaccine makers are immune from prosecution? Again, um, the problem here is the damage is so profound um, that even punishing vaccine makers is just no consolation um, when these kids are so damaged. Not only the kids, but adults too. Adults who get vaccines have tremendous negative effects. (laughs) Dr. Daniels, they passed a law in California that children can consent to vaccines without parents' knowledge or consent here in North Carolina they are bribing kids with iPods if they get a vaccine without telling their parents so if the child has a terrible reaction the parent does not even know they had the vaccine Uh, you know, you have to say this is what you get when you send your kids Uh, to government school and when you put your kids in the custody of strangers that's one thing my father always said that as bad as any parents might be, they are the child's best hope Uh, put another way, as a parent, it's unreasonable for you to expect anyone else to care for or take better care of your child than you, or even as good a care of your child, and for me that's what kept me doing the best I could like, oh my god, I'm all this kid has, (laughs) you know if I don't do it, if I don't take care of this kid, it just won't happen. And so that's what led me to be especially meticulous and vigilant and to not allow my child uh, uh, into the hands of, I oh, will say, institutions. All right, we have a question here. See if I can... Hi, your question, please? Uh, am I on? Yes, you are. Oh, Dr. Dennis, how are you? I'm I'm a gentleman that's Hi. called a couple of times in the past. Hi. In regards uh-huh. to stroke and, and um, the problems associated with spastic, being spastic. Oh, and how's it coming? I know you had – it's coming okay. You you, you recommended uh, milk thistle. I have been taking milk thistle. I wanted to find out, is there anything besides the milk thistle that I'm taking? Because I'm taking milk thistle capsules. Uh is there anything besides milk thistle that I can also take to uh, help further the process? Well, it's more to um, clean out your brain and clean out the sludge. So doing enemas would be helpful. Enemas, okay. Right, so it's more of a so, subtraction me- issue at this point. Yeah, if you take out the um, the junk and the stuff, then that, that will help. Okay, as far as a diet is concerned, what type of diet would you recommend? I'd recommend a vegan diet, vegan, whole food, organic diet. Vegan, whole food, organic diet. All right, thank you so much. I'll call you next week. I appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that is it. We have 30 seconds left. And as always, think happens. Remember, save those vaccines, those are not and toilet seats.